This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And with me, as always, is Maxwell Vogue. Hi, Max. Hey, Joris. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. And who do we have on the 3D Pod today? Well, we've got Gabe Benz of Slant3D. And uh, Slant3D is a really interesting company. Uh, I've tested a bunch of times in 2009, 2011, 14, uh, many years trying to manufacture using print farms and clusters of 3D printers, like desktop, cheap desktop printers, farm labs type printers, kind of Ultimaker type printers, and trying to make the economics of it work. And periodically people bring it up, but I'm a huge fan of this idea of using these lower cost printers, lower cost materials to flexibly manufacture products. But there's a lot of talk about that. There's not a lot of companies actually doing this successfully, and Slant3D is one of them. And what they've got is like a mega farm of 3,000 of their own design systems that they use to manufacture things. So that's a really different way of doing things uh, than we're used to. So that could have some really breakthrough economics that can make a lot of different things possible that can't be done with larger industrial systems and different economics. Yeah, we would love to learn all about that, I think. And uh, yeah, so welcome to the show, Gabe. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. Uh, good, good. So. Uh, so first off, like uh, this is a dream of mine to have my own giant print farm. Is it as fun as it sounds? <laughs> no, it's an absolute hellhole most of the time. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's what I figured. That's what I figured. It's super tough. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, so it's terrible. Are you just like? Are you just like? Is everything broken all the time? Is that what yeah, it is? Right. <laughs> It was in the early years. We sort of finally got past that stuff, but now it's just finding the new problems every single day Um, because it's so weird messing with this type of system that's never really existed before and hasn't been fleshed out. So there's Mm -hmm. always something, but it it keeps it fun and interesting that way. Okay. Are they all identical printers? Like what kind of printers are they for sure? Oh, yeah. Uh, We firmly (laughs) believe you can't hardly run a print farm if you're doing like high number of variations of machines. So each machine is exactly identical to every other one. Uh, there's iterations within it because we're always trying to improve the machines as much as we can, um, but they're always backwards compatible. So every part coming off of every machine is the same as every other machine. Because if you let that variation start to get into it, it just turns into this swirling hole of variation and things to think about that's not very scalable. Fair that's enough. A, I think it's interesting. One interesting point is you guys at one point develop your own machine and 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 off of the back of that run your farm is there an advantage to that too is understanding it better or making the exact same machine or just the economics of selling it and then using it or it's a little bit of all of that um the main impetus for us designing our own machines was the fact that there's not really anything on the market that's designed for production right now every desktop size machine is targeted towards a desktop consumer user and the design needs for a machine like that are totally different than a design machine for a factory that needs to be user-friendly. You need to make sure that everything's covered up so an inexperienced user doesn't stick their finger in a plug or something along those lines. But consumer machines are really, really tough to maintain. Uh, They're not designed to last for a very long time or have a very high output. Our machines run 24-7 and they have to run for at least three years without major breakdowns. Whereas a consumer machine has to print like one part a week, or if it's a power user, maybe one part a day. And then they are forgotten about or stuck in the garage most of the time, unless you're, again, that power hobbyist. But right now, since it's become so much more mainstream, the printers have become more disposable. 
So uh, we really kind of think it's almost impossible to build a, a really high volume print farm with off the shelf machines because they're targeted towards a different kind of market segment and they're not really intended for as a production machine. Yeah, so we're seeing some movement there. I mean, there's a couple other servers that really use like standard, like uh, I think Creality ANET type machines. Uh-huh. Of course, the, the cost per machine is really low, and then it would be much more like a you know Dell server kind of thing. It, it, it's broken, let's replace it kind of thing. But you think that also has limits just because it's not stable enough? Or... It depends on how often the machines break. That's the thing you can do kind of the math on. Um, the problem, but yeah, the, the problem with low quality machines is not that they suddenly break to where it's an easy call of pull the machine and swip in, swap in a fresh new one. It's a question of how much does it degrade and when does that degradation make it unusable, which is a much more subtle thing and again, makes it really tough to create processes around it. Because within a printer, there's all kinds of variations of things that can go wrong. Um, so you need to make sure that as few things can possibly go wrong as possible. And when they do, they're catastrophic. So you can say, replace that part, pull that machine, and just get on with life. Yeah. So but then you guys built your own machine. How do you say, like, no, if the stepper motor or something of that nature is, like, worn down? Are you tracking that separately? Or do you actually have sensors on the machine to say, like, hey, just replace my motor? <laughs> There's a, a little bit of that. The machines are pretty smart themselves, but uh, mainly it comes up through like the back end production software that like guides technicians. So like once every three months, do a system check on each one of these machines where we'd print like a calibration kind of print that's explicitly right. towards cr- right. testing those kind of functionalities to make sure everything's still in tune. And all that is basically automated and a person gets a, a notification on their phone that says, oh yeah, we got that's the task today. So it's a lot more <laughs> like a server farm where, yes, it's self-diagnosing, and then the techs go out and flip the switch on the flashing red light of wh- whatever rack is having a problem. Right. And then the other the other approach to doing this is using much more kind of higher-end machines. I know I've tried doing this with, with like Ultimaker-type machines. So we're talking about 3 mm-hmm. to 5K per machine. And then you've got a much more reliable thing. But then, yeah, it's still not exactly made for what you want to do, and you have to kind of like adapt it and stuff like that. Do you think that would be another approach or do you think your approach is superior because you do you're getting design advantage over these very sophisticated machines as well um there there's still design advantage over the sophisticated machines because sophisticated can just mean complicated or feature rich which again is kind of a consumer focused metric our machines are as basic as they can possibly be again to reduce the things that can go wrong with them because the the smallest error is multiplied a thousand times but yes, those high quality machines, when we were starting uh, Slant3D way back when, Ultimaker was the machine that was like closest to what we wanted to do. But the problem with them was the fact that they weren't automatable. Um, so we had to very explicitly create a, a machine that could be highly automated, highly reliable, and highly maintainable that could actually be used in the system rather than trying to jerry-rig these machines that were intended for a different purpose. Okay. And did you develop your own software or do you rely on something like 3DQ or something similar to that? Oh, no. Yeah, we had to develop our, all of our own software. Um, Ooh, until very fun. recently, um, most print farm softwares, again, were kind of like for the sub 10 machine kind of setups. Um, and the ones that went for larger were for individual prototyping. So there's not a software that we found that reliably does mass production, like the production and quality checking of like a hundred thousand to a million kind of parts um, because it's just a different kind of a beast. And again, since their their main market are these smaller types of farms, they have to design towards those smaller types of farms because we're such a rare duck and we don't pay them enough money to really design a whole system specifically for us. 
Um, so yeah, a lot of our stuff is internally developed just because we're kind of a market of one right at the moment, which we hope changes okay. as fast as possible. Yeah, me too, me too. But, and are you going to sell the print farms? Because that would be the obvious thing I would do, like sell print farms, large companies. <laughs> yeah. kind of thing. No. Just sell setup systems? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, print we will not. Out. Yeah. <laughs> um, the print farms, it's so odd because, again, it's not something that we can drag and drop into a factory and say, here, this is going to work and give them a, a technical subscription for the year where one of our pros comes in to fix the problems. Because the problems are still fairly varied. And a lot of them are unknown because, again, once they start putting a particular type of part on this or start breaking the system, there's so much variation of what print farms can do. We don't know what a person will do, so we can't predict how much effort it is. Like, it, if you want to go back to like consumer machines, the customer support on those could be awful because um, very few people are able to reliably operate a machine right off the bat because it's a, it's a hobby and it's a skill um, more than it's a microwave. I always like to say that, yeah. Uh, 3D printers are bandsaw. They're not a microwave. They're not something you can just plop in the kitchen and start using. Um, you can sort of for a moment, and then the nozzle clogs, and you might have no idea why that is or what caused it. Um, and we don't want that problem on a production level because <laughs> there are really critical corporate functions in it. Um, but we also believe that having it all internal, and if we can just optimize our processes to where we're a contract manufacturer or an, an invisible backend for all of these other companies, they don't need to have to deal with the hardware and the upkeep and the experience and skill that it takes to operate one of these systems. If we can turn around a part in 24 hours, that's as good as any system inside of a factory would do. Okay, okay. But you're, yeah. but you still then have the the geo, the geographic problem that you're not. Sure. I mean, how many print farms are you setting up? I guess is my question there. But if you're, you know, you're stuck where you are with having 3,000 machines in one location, theoretically. Yes. Uh. The shipping time is still kind of an issue. Um, but then, again, if it's that critical single part we need a prototype tomorrow, we're not really the right kind of company for that right, right. at the moment. No, no, no. Yeah. But you are right about the, the geographical spacing. That's a problem that we're actually fixing this year. So we have another factory going in uh, on east coast of the United States. Um, that will help for light distribution on that side. And then we plan about one more in the U.S. and then a, a European and Australian ones here at some point in the future. And do you make your own filament? We make some of it. Um, we don't want to because, again, <laughs> we got enough going on. Um, right. we, don't, we don't want to be this vertically integrated. It wasn't the plan. Um, but the suppliers just don't exist. And filament, again, since it's so focused towards the consumer market where an individual guy is willing to pay 25 bucks a pound for it, um, it works. But even at wholesale, that's not really viable for production. So if we get, if we bring more of our material production in-house, then we get close to the cost of the beads, which is the same cost for raw materials as injection molding. There is really not a rational reason why filament should cost more than 10 bucks outside of like certain controls of particular materials and the industry just not pushing certain materials. Like PET G is a commodity. It costs dollars per pound or sub dollars per pound. Um, so it, it shouldn't be 25 bucks a spool. And yeah, we're trying to get away from that because that's one of the biggest irritations and biggest cost drivers, especially when we're trying to hit that really massive scale for certain clients. So how big are the spools you're using? Because I've like we had some things where we're using eighty kilo, eight kilo spools, stuff like that. What are you doing then? Mm -hmm. uh, we use um, a, it's a, a custom wound about four kg spool. That seems to be the optimum size between changeover and 
actually holding it on the machine. Oh, okay, okay. You just blew it. It's actually on the machine? Okay, okay. I thought you just blew it from something else. Okay, okay. But when we first... <laughs> just talk, lines we, like we a spider web. We looked at that at one point. We were like, can we do a giant spider web in here? And we are oh like, Oh my nah. god, you have, you have no idea <laughs> I'm, how I'm long I spent hanging hang this stuff on the ceiling. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm okay. curious, like, did you guys look at even just, you know, developing a machine where you dump pellets into it and, and you do extrusion as part of that process? For like 15 seconds. Um, (laughs) (laughs) the pellets are great for really large format because you can control the the density variation and that kind of stuff in them but on a desktop size machine that's making small parts the the variation and potential error generation rate for pellets is just really high um and then you're just increasing complexity of the machine we we zealously kill individual screws on the machine. I don't even want to put in a motorized pellet monitoring or operating system <laughs> extrusion. It all has to work, and then we got to deal with the ringing from the stupid heavy pot end. All the rest of it. It's just a. It turns into a mess too fast. Because again, a filament should not be expensive. It's a trivial process to put beads through a hot tube and turn it into filament. Yet so many people make mistakes with it. Yes, that's true. <laughs> I mean, okay, so, so t- uh, now your print farm is it's three three thousand systems, right? Uh huh. So how big is that? Like, uh, give me an idea. Like, so yeah, the main mega farm here in Boise is fifteen thousand square feet. Okay. Oh, that's uh, not that. That's not. Yeah, crazy. That's, that's pretty compact actually. That's also really yeah. interesting because then you can put it in a lot of different cities, right? Yeah. Yeah. The fifteen thousand well, square feet. The, the main construction on it is actually power. So we, uh, our mega farm, is inside of a train factory right now. Um, a, a defunct train factory. So there's about 50,000 amps on the wall that we can pull from. Theoretically, uh-huh. we can put 5,000 machines inside of here, uh, give or take a few, before we just pack it too tight. But I'm hoping that a bunch of Bitcoin mining farms go out of business and we can just <laughs> move into their That's I think those are going to be you cheap. Should just just have the printers should be mining BitFarm as well. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah, okay okay and then, so power okay. is the main draw and you can't okay and that, that would be difficult you should go into one of those buildings in new york that don't have windows yeah uh, they've got exactly. lots of power uh, <laughs> uh, but, um, uh, okay so that's a logistical issue then and uh uh and well tell me how, what's automated on it is it part removal plate removal how does it work so we we push on automation and everything. Um, the part removal is automated by the machine itself. Um, they're they're actuated enough to where they're able to remove a part, and then we did some really cool stuff with like bed adhesion materials and that kind of thing to make sure that parts release when we want them to release. Um, so for yeah, small parts that are ejectable, the machine self eject. Um, that doesn't work for like large parts. So like we do certain products for folks that might be big and bulky. Um, and obviously you don't want to shove those off the end of the machine cause they just don't land quite right in all the systems. Um, so those are like a manual removal, which is being automated right now. Um, so we will have robots that both pull the beds and replace the spools. And our version 14 machine is more amenable to that in a number of different ways. So that'll all be totally automated here in about, oh, six to 12 months. Are you uh, like envisioning like a six axis arm on a mobile platform running around the factory doing? Not six say? axis, but darn close. Yeah, a mobile oh, okay, robot yeah. with a, an actuator on it. With an arm. With an arm yeah. or something. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, again, as few things that go wrong as possible. Yeah, yeah, no, no. Uh, then you can turn the robot arm into a printer. So when it's yes, not exactly. servicing the when it's <laughs> we can print boats in the middle of the room because everybody's exactly. really shopping for those. Um, 
but uh but yeah the, the the refill will be automated and right now we have a like distribution and fulfillment in in well not fulfillment distribution and automated bots inside of the farm like moving filament around to technicians and back and forth mm-hmm. to stations the walk in from you know 100 feet all day long can turn into a really long walk after a while so we automate those silly kind of jobs and then post processing uh depending on the part itself and how it's designed um is very often automated and what kind of library do you guys offer in material? Or do you, I mean, do you, I assume you're restrictive on some level because, you know. <laughs> we don't go to peak. So, yeah, we don't go to the super high temp stuff, but anything else that's on a spool, we run. Um, there's really no limitation on our machines within that. So everything from, yeah, standard PLA all the way up to carbon fiber nylon. And, and like, how many parts do, well, how many parts can you produce and how many parts about that do you produce or what you're comfortable sharing in that, in that next the, uh, uh well, we, on average, we produce uh, uh, some tens of thousands, between ten and 20,000 parts per week. But the, uh, that's kind of a bad metric because it's a question of are you making small parts or big parts? Right. And it's like, oh, yeah, we made a ton of golf markers last year, like <laughs> yeah, right. 100 million of them or something like that. <laughs> what would he do? Um, we generally consider a part something about the size of your fist. So that, that's kind of the range of that. Uh, we're in the off season right now, coming off of Christmas, so it's a, a lower time right now because um, we have to design the farm again a lot like a server farm. The capacity of like servers running YouTube are unutilized about ninety percent of the time, and then they're just there for when one viral goes, one video goes viral, and everybody's on the internet. So you have to build all the infrastructure around the spikes, not around the mm. average. So that's all that we have to make sure that there's a lot of excess capacity for like Christmas season or when fidget spinners come back around and every single human on earth wants one of those again. And is that the kind of stuff that you're actually printing now? Is it like, I mean, I don't know what you can share. Obviously, I don't want to uh, infringe any NDAs, but what kind of things are you guys making? Oh, it's everything. The the variation is fantastic. Um, So we do everything from consumer goods so like we have like a toy building set right now that's kind of lego-esque that we work with for one client um and then there's of course like industrial hardware that's the quick easy stuff um but casts prosthetics the typical kind of things you'd know but basically anything that you've seen that is plastic we've probably worked with a motorcycle armor um all of that stuff has been done and and typically, like, what kind of customers do you have, or why? Yeah, what kind of customers do you have first of all? Um, they again vary the full range from individual Etsy stores all the way up to um, yeah, Fortune five hundred companies and those kind of guys who. So they're again really wide range because the the volume is so flexible. Um, the Etsy stores generally work with us on like the print on demand, so that they can just forward their orders right to us, and then we print pack and ship it for them, so that they can prototype and create products. Um, but we deal with all the scale and the surges and the the logistics of it. And then, of course, the corporate clients are generally trying to avoid molding. Um, right now, we have a break even with molding at about 100,000 plus parts. So if you're making fewer than that, printing is generally a better option. If you're making more than that, go ahead and use the molding. But like Toyota considers mass production to be 25,000. And we think if we've exceeded one of the best manufacturers' volumes in the world, that's a good metric. And now we can come back down. That's fair. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's and then, I mean, that's, very, a, that's very a lot few. of parts. It is a yeah. bunch of parts. But very, very few people overestimate how many parts get made for like an individual product. Very, very few products ever exceed like 10,000 units in their lifetime. 
I mean, GI Joe figures or something like that that you'd see at Walmart or something just really don't move that many in a production context. There's not a lot of iPhones out there. Although you do lose the the ability to have you know multiple parts in a mold, right? So when when I'm doing what does that mean? as you said, like if, you know, I'm doing a pen or something, I have top and bottom shell. Sure. And those get done at the exact same time in a mold, whereas they have to be printed. So is the time sure. time value the same or is it actually still a bit longer? Oh, it obviously longer. takes longer to print an individual right. part. Um, but there, there's a, a question of where you want to measure it. Obviously, at the machine level, it's silly con- to compare an individual desktop size machine to an injection molding machine. Sure. But yes. Very, <laughs> print farm to an injection molding machine, it's really quite similar. Um, and because you're doing them all at the same time, yes, because all the machines are yeah. working in parallel. It's like, oh, yeah, a single transistor is really stupid and can't do anything with it. But once you put a few thousand of them together, now you can do some math and that kind of thing. Right. Um, so the, the, the swarm capability there and the network capabilities are what make the difference. But then you also have to look at like the timeline of the full supply chain. Since we're US-based and really low labor, we're able to match the cost of a mold in China on a per part level. But then you also have two months plus whatever COVID will add the next time it comes around. Um, of it getting across the ocean. So the fact that we can just ship immediately or ship a thousand parts in a week and then give you a thousand parts every month after that, rather than 10,000 parts in three months, um, is a way more flexible and more attractive uh, full supply chain than a lot of po- folks realize. The individual part speed of like, oh, an injection molding machine makes it in 30 seconds. Right. It only makes 10,000 parts this week. And we're like, okay, well, if it's a slow part in that situation and it takes, say, a month to produce those 10,000 parts, we still got it here before it crossed the ocean on the boat. So ultimately, it doesn't matter. And we can get you parts by tomorrow that are good enough quality and ready to go into production or go into sales right away. So the, the feedback, it's a, it's a smaller spike, but a quicker response. And are you, you're generally doing finished goods at the end of the day. Yeah, generally. Yeah. (laughs) Fair me. (laughs) Yeah, the finished goods is really interesting because everybody's always going after the products of how, oh, 3D printing, surface finish, and that kind of thing. That's a really typical argument that we run into. But, like, have you ever purchased or ever seen, like, a wooden toy? Wood, for some reason, is a premium material that has layer lines. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it's somehow better. Yeah, exactly. but, yeah, designers have learned how to use that material in a way that's useful and conducive to that material. The problem with mass production printing right now is a lot of people are trying to pigeonhole molded designs into it, which is a mistake because you're not using either process very well because the rules are completely different. And this is the, probably the, the biggest challenge to the industry is just the design for manufacturing. Because folks just don't know how to use the process appropriately at the design stage. And then, and why do you, well, you kind of already told us like, but how do customers come to you? You already kind of say that there's like this magical kind of little area where you play in, but how do they find you? Or, or what's the actual impetus? Is it like, oh my God, I have a thousand or something. I need something. Is it, do they have like a crisis situation or are they looking to reduce costs or? Oh, I hope they Amazon advertising. <laughs> uh, we do a little bit of everything. Um, so we've got the the sales team. We have all of our organic kind of stuff. So we um, 
run both our blog and our YouTube channel and that kind of thing, which all focus on mass production 3D printing. So if you end up Googling it as an option, either in a crisis state or if you're just considering it because it's trendy at a certain point, um, you almost always kind of stumble in our door. So that's kind of the easy folk, uh, way of the folks searching for it. Um, and then the sales team reaches out to customers and clients where we're like, this could be printed. This would be a really good idea. They should be printing it. We, we've done this part before. We know that we can save them a ton or whatever it happens to be. So we just reach out and we have the conversation. Um, so, but yeah, it, it's ultimately a little bit of everything. Okay. And, and, and how do you hope to grow? Is it like, okay, you're going to get the second site and a third one? Is it just like a, that kind of expansion or, or how do you see that happening? Uh, yeah, the second site will be coming in this year for sure. Um, and then we, yeah, we try to grow as fast as we can. We don't, we don't want to mess around with it because ultimately there's about $2 trillion of plastic parts out there and about 200 billion of them could be made with printing right today without any adjustment or change in the designs. They could just email us the file. So there's a huge market opportunity out there that's kind of sitting on the table. Um, and there was this huge opportunity that was increased by when COVID hit because everybody was in pain and there was, you could step up and just say, Hey, we can make your parts and they give you a shot because there wasn't any other option. So it was a really good time to convert uh, folks from the old process. That's waned quite a bit in the last year since it's not as critical anymore in supply chains. But yeah, long-term our growth is we try to make sure that the company doubles every single year. And we're trying to accelerate that as much as possible because really right now, the limitations are capacity more than anything else and the education gap with certain clients. But that's, that's just walking them through it and helping out with the design for manufacturing. So that's, that's a fixable problem. Okay. And, and how did you guys get started? We kind of skipped ahead of what you guys are doing. Oh, now, yeah, how did you guys end up getting into <laughs> it? Yeah. Slant 3D was very much started by accident. Um, we, uh, prior to this, I ran a product design company called Slant Concepts. And within that, we mainly worked with robotics and consulting and that kind of stuff. Uh, my background was consumer robotics. But within that, we had thrown together kind of a toy kit kind of for the fun of it uh, that was a little robot arm that we had decided to 3D print because we didn't want to mold it. Um, and we thought we were going to sell 100 of them and move on with life. But it ended up being a more successful product line than that and ended up having 10 additional kits to it over like two years or so. Um, that, but with that project, we were exposed to having to build a print farm because there was nobody at that time that we could outsource this production to, which we wanted to do. They couldn't do it affordably. So we built the print farm and slept through it all. And it was fantastically irritating. Uh, <laughs> I, I had no interest at all in working with right. a print farm in any sort of context. <laughs> um, but what happened was with working with that print farm, we were able to say, okay, why doesn't this work and why is it so awful? And ultimately it came down to like machine design. And we were like, well, if you tweak this on that machine and you do this over here and move these things around and create processes and systems rather than buying 50 machines, and putting them on a shelf or something, it became much more efficient very quickly. So we, we knew there wasn't some breakthrough that had to occur. It was an implementation and engineering problem where we're like, okay, there's the roadblocks and milestones, but we have an idea of how to fix them. So we were able to start pushing on that. So that's when we started uh, building the first design of the slant box. Um, right now we're on iteration 14, 14.2. Um, um, but we've been able to just break down these problems into very manageable bites to where we were able to hit scale. Because fundamentally, 
3D printing should be more efficient than injection molding. Molding, you have plastic and electricity to heat the mold, and then you have the mold on top of it to actually form the material. With printing, you just have electricity and plastic. So it should be better. And the fact that it's not is just an engineering problem right now. Okay, so at one point you're spending a lot of time on this. And at one point you were like, this is a better business than the concepts thing? Or when did you decide this? to like, like change your, your business essentially? Uh, I decided to spin out Slant 3D um, from Slant Concepts because it was more attractive. Uh, there's uh, Slant 3 or Slant Concepts was basically a consultancy. And consultancy have kind of limits on how big they can ultimately be because they're so dependent on like human labor. Um, so we did that to mess with stuff, but Slant 3D had a very fundamental truth attached to it. Again, the idea that it should be more efficient than molding. And if you can find that fundamental truth in a company, that's something to hang your hat on when life gets hard. Um, and then that fundamental truth was a good impetus. And then the market opportunity with how efficient current supply chains and manufacturing processes are was a good reason to keep on pushing on it because it could and can be something really, really big. So yeah, that was the impetus to spin it off. There was a fundamental truth and a really, really big opportunity. And and how did you find your first customers? Because now you seem you have like you know the marketing machine going. And how did you actually find people that were well? How did you find the first good customers? I think that's the problem. I think Ooh. with a business like you would have, right? They, that's yeah. awesome they have question. lots of tire kickers, <laughs> you know, lots of people that want to do it at at two cents, but it's two bucks. But how did you find good customers? Yeah. Oh, that that's an awesome question. Um, finding good customers is just a matter of trial and error, and it's one that we continually run into. Um, Printing is tough because you can make anything. So what do you make? You just start running down the phone book from A to Z. Targeting customers is a really, really tough for us of like, okay, what new category do we now move into or push on or pursue? The first ones, yeah, we, we would take everything through the door and try to do it and then find out how wrong or stupid we were at any given moment. Um, and then we'd iterate and move from there. But the first customers that we had were actually at the previous company where we just started having excess capacity and people would like randomly reach out to like the, the little bots website uh, that was the product line and just saying, you make a bunch of 3D printed parts. Can you make stuff for us or whatever it was? And we we're like, yeah, sure, whatever. Um, and we throw their stuff on in the, the, the down hours. So that's kind of where it first started coming through and was also kind of like the market proof before we actually spun it out into its own company too. And then did you fund this yourself or did you get a lot of funding? How, how did you manage to keep this afloat and grow to like a 3000 printer farm thing? So 3D printing has a really fantastic advantage of not requiring large swaths of capital investment, especially when you're starting out. Like if you have one machine, you can double capacity for a couple hundred bucks. And then again and again and again onward to where you can expand as customers, as the demand grows. So you have this really flexible way of building supply as demand comes in. And since you can build that supply really quickly by yeah, buying more machines or building more machines, um, it's easy to go get the customer, get them signed on, say, yeah, we're going to do the job and then go buy the machines with their down payment for the project. Um, so it was easier to cash flow than many businesses because we didn't have to build a whole factory right off the bat we were able to build an organically growing swarm. Um, so we were able to bootstrap it for the first couple of years. With the farm as it is right now, we are at this stage where we have to buy a whole factory um, each time. 
So now we have more financing around that we're, we're using for the, the expansion over the next few years. And we're hoping to ex- expand that funding and continue to grow it there. Okay. And, Are you and- profitable then? Oh, yeah. If I Okay, cool. Congratulations. Oh, yeah. We've been profitable from day one. Uh, I come from a, a cattle ranching background, so farming and that kind of stuff. And uh, you, you go out of business fast there and it's uh, if you're, you're not careful. So it was a kind of a very conservative sort of business training. Um, so I kind of pulled from that as we run the companies here. But as you get more proof, you can become more ambitious and take kind of bigger swings at bat um, that don't endanger the company, but are able to keep on pushing you forward. And isn't it tempting to at one point like start designing your own products or making your own products yeah, again? How or, do you or, exactly? Or you're not doing oh. that on purpose? Oh, we have an entire consumer division. <laughs> oh, you do? Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. So you're- <laughs> uh, yeah. I, yeah, literally, uh, probably the, the marketing team works with the production stuff a bit, but probably about 70% of their time is on our own consumer products. Um, but yeah, the, the consumer products themselves both go through our, our e-commerce side, which is Angled.io, where we both work with designers who are submitting uh, products to us that we review and approve for the site and then propel and market for them. And then they get royalties off of the sales. Um, but then we do our own internal product design, which we mainly started doing as a demonstrator. Again, folks don't really know how to make good products with 3D printing. Whereas we know how to mass produce them and we've got from my history in product design uh, at Slant Concepts and that kind of thing, how to kind of pick a good product and what could be a good product. Um, and even if it's a failure, it's a, a commercially, it's a good demonstration because we can like pull the baker's cube or something out and say, hey, this is how you make a really sick kind of impossible to mold 3D printed part that's very useful and very utilitarian to a normal consumer. Or this is how you get rid of layer lines to make a part that's really beautiful and you can't tell is 3D printed or so on and so forth. Whatever kind of feature we want to demonstrate, we can kind of integrate that into a product if we see a good application for it. Um, so yeah, the consumer division is a way to show people how to do the business model for mass production 3D printing. Um, and it's also more controllable because with like clients, when you're a contract manufacturer, um, you have clients who come back to you on a fairly regular basis. But ultimately, you don't really have control of your destiny. I can't automatically just say, yeah, spend more on Instagram ads and we'll sell more or something like that. That doesn't necessarily happen because it's a a corporate decision that's kind of inelastic to advertising. So having these internal products give us some better usage of our capacity and better uh, reliability over time of like demand and cash flow Um, because it just gives us more control of our future. And what kind of consumer products do you have on the site? What's the site again? Angle.io. Okay. Lots of fun stuff. Fidget toys, piggy banks, organizers. All kinds of things. Yeah. Walmart, the piggy banks are actually fun. Yeah, lots of skulls. <laughs> For headphones. For headphones. My, yes, skulls. You would be amazed. Yeah. <laughs> you just have uh, a massive collection of them in your Oh, office. my goodness. We've got so many skulls around. Um, but yeah, the, the, the headphone stands and like gamer gear are a really kind of common one right now. Um, but it rotates through. So like there's individual products and like, uh, partners that we work with, um, through like our featured designers and that kind of stuff. Many of them are like YouTubers. Um, and there's more of them coming down the pipe to where they'll promote it for their store and we'll do like the merch for their store. Um, so there's all kinds of cool stuff that we can do with that side and lets us experiment with different kind of business models. 
how many clients do you have right now that are kind of doing this Alibaba, if you will, model of, of creating a website, linking into your system? So all they're really doing is maintaining their website and they provided the 3D for the product and you guys are doing most of the work. Um, but like, I mean, it's a great model. Like that's mm -hmm. what Alibaba does in a sense, right? You, sure. you set up your store and you link it to Alibaba and then you make an order and it comes from China. Yep, um, drop shipping. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, is, it, are you, is that where you see the largest expansion or is that, and, and approximately how many people do you currently have you, taking advantage of that? It is a, uh, a decent component of the business because it is so scalable. Um, yeah. uh, so we're going to be deploying a piece of software to where it is basically one click access to the farm where, yeah, you can upload 10,000 models to us or whatever else it was and then list them on your Etsy store or whatever it happens to be. And then they will print and ship for a, a low or flat rate that's really predictable. And then you can take whatever margin you want off the top. So pure drop shipping. Um, and yeah, that, that base API will be done in just a couple months. Um, and then we'll build out integrations for it for like Shopify and Etsy here over the next year. Um, that's as cool. we're able to, so it will, <laughs> it will make 3d printing basically the equivalent of drop shipping. And with that package, we are showing people like certain like customizable items that they can do and trying to work with some other, uh, third party developers so that like, yeah, you can upload a photo and then it's imprinted on the nightlight and you auto print that nightlight for a nickel or whatever it happens to be, or resell the artwork on the nightlight. Um, so it's a great way of merchandising that's way more interesting than mugs and t-shirts. Yeah. Especially if I, you can do any kind of customization on top of yeah. it. That's, yeah. I literally worked for like a year of my life on trying to do this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> literally. Just this. a whole but bunch then, of people, you know? <laughs> yeah. But it was like in 2011. <laughs> well, sweet. Yeah, you still got really, that stuff laying really. around or something like that? We could probably do that. <laughs> I, I am I curious, I how got, do you, how yeah. do you, and this is a really minor point, but how do you deal with like IP and for, like, you know, if someone yeah. puts an X wing up on their store and then just sends you the file to print it. Um, yeah. Um, that's responsible. It's weird. Um, because it does kind of depend on the retail channel. Um, so like if they're, we, in that context with that software, uh, we serve as just the manufacturer. So the manufacturer is generally not responsible for IP. So the gen manufacturer is generally not responsible for IP um, of the product because there's no possible way you can back research whoever is ordering apart from you all the way through, whether you're in China or the US or whatever else it was. So if a, yeah, an IP holder wants to sue somebody, they got to go to whoever the client was um, because there's no way for us to know or track everything out there because we don't know what movie from 1970 Disney made one time and somebody pulled the hand from the main character or something. There's no way to know. Oh, um, yeah, that was a whole thing, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in the context of like our e-commerce side, like Angled, where we curate the products right now, it is our responsibility to know where all that stuff is and where it goes. But when we're producing the parts it's a problem that we want to certainly deal with and we're working on ways to curtail it because we don't want to have to we don't want to have to be involved in that fight at all if we can but it's a, it's going to be kind of an ongoing sort of issue that same way any sort of content management platform is so like youtube is continuously working on how to manage ip related content do you get 30 seconds in a video or a 2 second clip from a meme and when does you you lose your money and so on and so forth that's something that we would have to start working through at some point. 
as more people start to use this kind of base system for different kinds of things that we just haven't thought of yet. Um, but yeah, it's probably going to be something that we're going to have to work with. Um, but the solutions aren't set in stone and there's so much gray around physical products because now they start overlapping with patents and when does a trademark turn into a patent, turn into a design patent and so on and so forth. And what is original work? When does Spider-Man not become Spider-Man or something like that? So there's 20%. It's all this weird stuff, which is fun. But yeah, it's going to be a thing that the industry is going to have to work with for years to come. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. A great moment of relief came for me when I heard that that was it was the amount of money that you made off of the part that you would be then liable for in certain cases. And we're like, oh, we're making a loss on every part, so it's all good. So they owe us money. (laughs) (laughs) You want us to give you minus five dollars? Here you go. (laughs) Great. Yeah. What a model. What a model. (laughs) (laughs) The money we make on this one thing. Oh, okay. But um, (laughs) so I'm really excited because at one point I came up with this idea of the desire engine, which is this this idea of just saying like, imagine you're a designer. You could just design like two products a day, Mm -hmm. make one prototype. Put it on the site, and then one point you can hit a three D print lottery and become uh, come uh, end up with something popular. You know exactly. I mean, you, the you only are thing able you to do is- the kind of A B testing with physical products that you can do with digital right now. So the way you optimize a website, mm-hmm. you can now ac- actually optimize real stuff and yeah. get the numbers on your side. And I love this idea. I love this idea of just being able to just like you know imagine you're a designer, you make two products a day, and at one point you have the residual. In a, in a matter of fact, right? You get all these things that maybe don't work now. You could still have live somewhere. Maybe yes. they work five years later. And then at one point, yeah, you just out the time to print it, the time to design it, and the time to put it in your light box or whatever. Mm-hmm. I love this. I think that this could be very successful because like if you just harness the right. You know, you wouldn't, yeah, you, you just have to have certain designers to be successful some of the time. And then at one point, you just wait until somebody hits it big with something completely niche, right? Exactly right. Yeah, something blows up on TikTok and you, you designed it three years ago and now everyone wants it. Totally. But it's on yeah, demand exactly. printing. So it doesn't matter. So, yeah. you know, <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. You, were, you didn't have a warehouse that you were sitting uh, for three years waiting for the product to be sold. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And you can actually, yeah, try enough stuff to find something that could actually be a winner. Most people always hang their hat on a single product and then break themselves trying to make it sell. Whereas right now you can just try a hundred different ideas and finally find the one that works and then optimize from there. So it's, yeah, it's so much easier for people to actually make physical real products now. Okay. I think that's really, really exciting. Thank you so much for being here today, Guy. No problem, guys. Thanks for having me on. This was fun. And uh, Max, thank you for being here as well. As always. Yeah, no. Likewise. And thank you for listening. This is another episode of the 3D Pod, and uh, enjoy your day. Have a great day. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint.com.